Good morning. I'm going to pray for us uh, before we start talking about Galatians 1. Father, uh, we thank you that you are our Father, um, that Jesus is our Savior, he is our Lord. Uh, We pray that you would grow our our faith, Uh, we pray that you would grow our hope, and we pray that we would grow that you would grow our love uh, for you and for each other. Um, Today, we just ask that you would open Galatians to us, uh, that we would be able to glimpse and see the precious truths of the true gospel, Lord, and we would just also be able to see the destructive twistings that a false gospel can do. We pray that you would make us uh, a people who guard the purity of the gospel, that we would guard the doctrine, the teaching of the good news, knowing that in Christ we have life, outside of Christ we have nothing. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So for some months now, we've been doing a series kind of unpacking different statements uh, from the vision Uh, that the elders kind of, uh, last summer when we went on an elders retreat, uh, we worked uh, on a document and then we started kind of uh, working on it with different various leaders within the church and then eventually unrolled it to the church itself. Um, So we've been doing three different sections. We've been doing going, gathering, and today we're starting teaching. And we're we're changing it up a bit. Uh, Let me read the statement from our vision document. This is uh, teaching. We glorify God in teaching his church to obey Christ's commands, explaining and expounding the word of God, and encouraging and exhorting the works God requires. So for this section, we've changed uh, the way that we're doing it because we wanted to emphasize teaching in kind of two ways. First, we're returning to what I would call is the normal diet of a remedy church sermon. The normal diet of a Remedy Church sermon is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So we're returning uh, to that kind of normal diet. We've always done what's known as expository preaching, which just is pretty simple. Expose the text. You go to the text, whatever that text means, that's the meaning that we should then talk about in the sermon. So we've been doing that through the vision series. But our kind of diet of expository preaching is always in the context of going verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, so on. So we're returning to that kind of normative diet. The, the second thing is, is we picked an epistle. Now, the reason we picked an epistle, it's kind of like breaking fourth wall. This is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, teaching and instructing a church. And we're talking about teaching Right? And so now we're going to not only see how God teaches a specific church, but as we emphasize different elements of teaching, they come out of that, that context. So that's why we are um, starting a series in Galatians. We'll be here until mid-August, and then we get to return to John, the second half, the return, the revenge of John. Let me set the, the table a bit, since this is a new book that we haven't talked about. The, the Galatian churches were likely planted by Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey sometime around Acts 13 and 14. So they were uh, set apart in the church, the Antiochian church. Uh, People laid hands on them and they sent them out. And then literally the first places they go to are different cities 
within the, uh, the uh, region of Galatia, such as another Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, Paul is stoned in Lystra, so he doesn't necessarily have the best experience in the region of Galatia. Let me kind of read that summary so you get a, a gist of what he does. This is Acts 14, 20 through 23. It says, so after he's stoned, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they admitted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, Though he was stoned at one of these cities, he seemed to have great ministry success. He had planted churches in each of these cities, and by the end of it, he had appointed elders, so there's leadership at these churches, and he just prays and fasts, commits them to God, and moves on. He's moving on to his next thing. But something happened, pretty quickly it seems. The beginning of Galatians has something that none of Paul's letters have, or maybe uh, to state it more accurately, Galatians has or lacks something that all of Paul's letters have. Galatians lacks a thanksgiving given to God on behalf of the church. That signals that there's something going on here. So let me give some examples. If you look at, you don't have to turn there, Romans 1.8. 1 Corinthians 1 4, 2 Corinthians 1 3, Ephesians 1 15, Philippians 1 3, Colossians 1 3, 1 Thessalonians 1 2, 2 Thessalonians 1 3, and Philemon verse 4. Those are all letters written to churches, not to specific people, minus Philemon. All of those have thanksgivings to God on behalf of the church at the beginning of the letter, pretty early on. But instead, where we, let me give an example, Colossians 1 3. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So there's a, there's a positive example. So we just actually wrapped up today uh, our Sunday school class on unlocking the text. And in one of the, the classes, we talked about a genre tool for discourse. All epistles are discourse. And so this tool was called ALT. It stands for Arguments, Logical Relationships, techniques. One of the techniques that we looked at was interruptions in the expected patterns of discourse. Whenever you see an interruption in an expected pattern, Paul or whoever's writing might be making a point. And so here we have where we expect a thanksgiving coming after verse 5. Instead, he replaces thanksgiving with astonishment. Galatians 1.6 says this, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, end quote. So our, our sermon today, we're going to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ because the text talks about the gospel. We're also going to talk about false gospels because the text is going to also talk about false gospels. Paul, with a kind of surgeon's precision, seeks to doctor the church of Galatia by persuading her to not abandon Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so we're gonna, we only have two points. 
Don't worry, there's like 7,000 subpoints under each one, so there's plenty of points. Uh, but we're going to look at the true gospel, and then we're going to look at a false gospel. So the first one comes to us from verses 1 through 5. The true gospel, dot, dot, dot. Um, Paul begins and ends uh, 1 through 10 with these bookends. The text is something of a, a chiasm. So we start in verse 1, and this matches later on. Paul's saying, I'm not pleased. Then we get in 1 through 5 a description of the true gospel. And then in 7 through 9, we get a description of a false gospel. And then kind of at the center of the chiasm is what we just read in verse 6. Paul's astonishment that the Galatians are thinking about abandoning the true gospel. So there's more about Paul defending his own authority that we see in verse 1 that's going to come later from verses 11 and forward. Uh, I just wanted to start just getting right into the five characteristics, implications, descriptors of the gospel. And these characteristics are simply this. The true gospel is Trinitarian. The true gospel is Christological or Christ-focused. The true gospel is salvific. The true gospel is for the church. And the true gospel's end is the glory of God. So let's look at each one of these things. The true gospel is Trinitarian. This is a logic thing. It's pretty easy. If the gospel is God's, and God is a trinity, the gospel is Trinitarian. There's logic. However, beyond the logic, it's in the text is Trinitarian. We see that at the very forefront, the father and son relationship takes center stage in the gospel. Verse 1 tells us that Paul's gospel is not from man nor through man, but rather through Jesus Christ and God the Father. We see this relationship again on the center stage. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of my favorite time periods in all of church history, it's called the patristic time period. It's about the 100s to the 600s AD. And in it, they have a, a kind of different way of emphasizing when they, when they think about and talk about the gospel. See, we tend to think about the blessings that come from Christ, like forgiveness of sins, justification by faith, righteousness, sanctification, glorification, all those kind of fancy words. They tended to focus first and foremost on the father's relationship with his son, Jesus. So they started actually in the depths of the Trinity before even kind of getting to the nitty gritty of the gospel. Now, talking about his blessings, talking about the cross and resurrection, those are all good things that we should talk about. But starting with the father-son relationship is first and foremost, and we should have that first and foremost in our minds. When they read the Bible, they see salvation as us being united to Jesus, sharing in his relationship with the Father. So all those blessings, that's us sharing Jesus's blessings that he has with the Father. You, uh, you see, we're righteous because Jesus is righteous. We are children of God because Jesus is the Son of God. We're in good standing with the Father because Jesus himself is in good standing with the Father. Now, this emphasis, again, I think is the right emphasis. Think of it this way. God the Father and God the Son are the circumference of the gospel, or if, if John, uh, you know, uh, it's the fence, John. I said that for you, uh, John Moore. 
Um, it's the fence of the gospel. They're the boundaries of the gospel. They're the things that hold all of the content together. If the content of the gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified, that content is held together and carried out by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Where do we see that in the text? Look at verse 1. God the Father who raised him from the dead. God the Father resurrects the Son, a key tenet of the gospel. Look at verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And so here we have the crucifixion and the resurrection being carried out by God the Father and God the Son, right? The true gospel is Trinitarian. Now, I don't know what you're doing in your head, but you might be going something like this. Uh, Father, Son, I only got two. Where's the third, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is not explicitly mentioned in chapter one or two, though his presence is felt. We'll get into that. But when you get to chapter three, he explodes into the gospel. You see him 11 times. You see him in chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six for the rest of the Galatian, the Galatian letter. Let me give you a quick taste. This is Galatians 4, 6. Paul writes, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit in this passage connects us as sons, as daughters to the father and brings us to him in prayer. That we share Jesus' own prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. The spirit in this passage connects us to Jesus, which then in turn connects us in, uh, to the Father. So again, I said the spirit is felt. He's assumed in Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4. It's easy to, to skip over, but look at that blessed word, our, O-U-R. Just look at verse 3, verse 4, you'll see it twice, our. Verse 3, it says this, the Father, he's God, our Father. Verse 4, our salvation is according to the will of our God and Father. The Spirit is felt because the Spirit is what connects us to the Son and makes God our Father. So the true gospel is Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they serve as the circumference, the boundary, the fence line of the gospel carrying out its content and applying it to our lives. But the true gospel is something else. It's Christological, it's Christ-centered, it's a gospel of Jesus. Since one member of the Trinity is God the Son, it's only natural that the gospel is also Christological. The patristic time period, again, going back to them, they, they wrote some good things, you should read them. The patristic time period, they produced three of the most unifying creeds of all time. Uh, the, first one, the first two are very recognizable. The Apostles' Creed, and obviously the Nicene Creed. Those are the two most recognizable. There's a third one that is way less recognizable, but extremely awesome and worth your attention. And this is called the Chalcedonian definition. Sometimes it's called the definition of Chalcedon. There's three basic truths about Christ in that statement. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is one person or the same person who's fully God and fully man. So let me read just a line from the, the, the Chalcedonian definition. It says this, Jesus, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, 
unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Are these truths scriptural? Because Yes. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying there? Paul is clearly saying there, Jesus is not merely a man. Jesus is in the same category as God the Father. My gospel is not from men, it's from Jesus, who's more than a man, and God the Father. That's what, that, that's what Paul is, is saying here in verse 1. Um, let me skip down a little bit. Uh, Paul starts, so here he's starting at the very top of the gospel, if you will. He's up in the heavenly clouds with God, and Paul is saying, Jesus is there. Jesus is God. But Paul then, in verse 4, is going to travel down to the earthly dirt with man, and he demonstrates that, again, our gospel reaches there, too. Look at verse 4. Jesus is the one who gave himself for our sins. This is a reference, and God die. Well, no, God can't die. Well, then how is Jesus God, and here he's spoken of as being dead? Jesus is also a man. He becomes flesh. He takes on human nature, and according to the human nature, he was nailed to the cross and resurrected on the third day from the grave. But all the while he was doing those things, he was alive and well and eternally dwelling in the fullness of power as God the Son, or a good image to think of. Jesus hanging on the cross according to his human nature was holding that very cross together by the word of his power according to his divine nature. He gave himself for our sins. This Jesus is clearly the same person since Paul refers to him here in verse 4 as dying and also in verse 1 implicitly as dying with the resurrection. So you see, the truth of Chalcedon is merely the truth of Scripture. The true gospel is Trinitarian. The true gospel is about the person of Christ. It reaches from the highest heavens down into the very depths of the earth, even death itself. But the gospel ladder is meant to be climbed. The gospel is salvific. It saves us. It does something for us. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. Uh, there's a lot here, but I'm going to confine myself to three kind of quick comments that should be a kind of sweet recuperating soup for our souls. This should warm us up. It should warm our love and stir our affections for Christ, these three things. So the first comes from the phrase, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus did not unwillingly go to the cross. He gave himself for our sins. So put yourself, the, the our sins, insert your name. He gave himself for your sins. He willingly gave himself up. Commentator Richard Longnecker is right. Um, he says this, the passage connects to Mark 10, 45, which says this, to give his life a ransom for many. And if you just start 
like you do always with scripture. If you start following it down the rabbit hole, you will find that the hole goes very deep. This connects to Mark 10. Mark 10 connects to Isaiah 53. It's directly alluding to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the clearest teaching in the Old Testament on the death of Christ for the sins of man. I'm just going to read one verse, verse 12 from Isaiah 53. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, end quote. So at face value, gave himself for our sins is the simplest and clearest way to just demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel. He gave himself for our sins. Uh, a theological term for this would be substitutionary atonement. Jesus substitutes himself in place of our sins that we might be delivered. So if the Trinity is kind of the boundary, the fence line of the gospel and the cross and resurrection is the content of the gospel, this atonement spoken of here, this giving of himself for sins is the heart of the gospel. So that's our first little taste of soup. The second one, and Father. This is an important reminder for us. Not only did Jesus want to give himself up for you as your meek and mild kingly savior, but this was according to the desire and will of our God and Father. The Father wanted to save you from sin. Jesus' desires, his humility, his teaching, his love point to one primary truth. They bring us to the very bosom of the Father, into the heart of God the Father, that the things that Jesus represents, those are the things that the Father represents as well. Sometimes we have a way of pitting them against each other, like the Father must have his justice, uh, you know, satisfied, and the Son wants to save us, but it's, they both must have their justice satisfied. They both wanted to save sinners. Look at the third uh, part of the soup to deliver us from the present evil age. Deliver here conjures up many Old Testament images of deliverance. We could go to the maybe the origin one, Exodus 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the, that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, end quote. The, the present evil age represents the world under the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. The true gospel delivers us by implication from an age into another age, a new age, an age where Paul can write elsewhere in Ephesians 2, we have been raised up, he raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places or elsewhere, every spiritual blessing has been given to us. Every spiritual heavenly blessing has been given to us. We are delivered by faith from the present evil age because Jesus himself was delivered from the present evil age in his resurrection. His death paid our price. His resurrection paved our way out of the present evil age. Now, there's a twinge of already not yet. Already, not yet. But all this harkens back to the one doctrine that we've kind of mentioned with the Spirit, union with Jesus Christ. 
The Spirit unites us to Christ. The benefits of Christ become our benefits. The benefits of his resurrection become our resurrection. Uh, Calvin says it negatively, and then I'll give a positive one. Calvin says this negatively. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless. That's pretty strong. Everything that Christ did, if he remains outside of us and we remain outside of him, it's useless. Uh, Dane Ortland says it a bit positively. Uh, he wrote a book called Deeper. He's the guy that wrote Gentle and Lowly, if you've ever read that. Deeper is also really good. If you like Gentle and Lowly, you'll like Deeper. Um, you should read that. But chapter three is one of the best chapters summarizing the doctrine of union with Christ that I've ever read. Um, and it's my, one of my favorite doctrines. So he says this, union with Christ is the umbrella doctrine within which every benefit of salvation is subsumed or is received is another way of saying that. He lists off several kind of views of salvation, blessings of salvation, so we can run through them. Justification, that we're declared right in right relationship with God. Sanctification, that we start to grow in Christ-likeness. Adoption, that we're now sons and daughters of the Most High. Reconciliation, that we're being brought back to God. Uh, Washing, that our sins have been forgiven and washed away. Redemption and purchase, that we've been purchased from the the dominion of Satan, sin, and death and brought into the kingdom of light. Liberation, that we've been freed. Uh, New birth, that we are now new men and women in Christ. Illumination, that we're given the knowledge of the incomprehensible God in Christ. And finally, resurrection, that we have everlasting eternity with God. And he says this, yet union with Christ is the master picture for we receive all these blessings and more because we're united to Christ by faith and they properly belong to him and so now they properly belong to us. The true gospel is salvific. The true gospel is for the church. Verse two, um, literally just says, to the churches of Galatia. That's where I'm getting this from. To the churches of Galatia. Multiple churches, because there are multiple cities, as we talked about in Acts 13 through 14, that Paul planted in Galatia. So I want to point out this true gospel is for the church, but I want to caution, because that kind of sounds exclusive. So the true gospel is for the church, meaning it doesn't belong to anyone else. It shouldn't be shared with anyone else. That is not what I mean. I do not mean that the gospel should only be shared with Christians, but it should be shared with Christians. Nor do I mean that the message shouldn't go out to every single person that is on the face of the planet. That is not what I mean. I mean kind of two things when I say that it's for the church. The first way is that the local church is to guard the gospel and its purity. The local church is to guard the gospel and its purity. Uh, Acts 13 through 14, the Galatian churches had elders at this point. Paul committed them to God. And yet when Paul writes his epistle, like many of his epistles, he doesn't write to the elders of Galatia. He writes to the members of Galatia. It's not a letter to be read to the elders. It's a letter to be read to the members. He could have said, elders, take care of this. Make sure that this thing doesn't happen. Stop teetering between a false gospel and go back to the true gospel. But instead, he in, instead, he in turn says, members, 
take care of this. The gospel belongs to you, Remedy Church, and you are the final earthly authority when it comes to caring for the purity of the doctrines of the gospel. A church can exist without elders. That, that's it. A church can exist without elders, <laughs> but not members. It can't exist without members. So as one of your elders, of course, I'm going to urge, I'm going to teach, I'm even going to demand when it comes to certain things, when it comes to the purity of the gospel. But ultimately, the buck stops with you as members of Remedy. Membership matters. The second way that I mean that it belongs to the church is that the true gospel is for the church. Is it, it, it means this, that the effects of Jesus' death remain useless when we're outside of it, but when you're put inside of Christ, you are brought into his body, which is the church. The effects of Christ, the blessings of salvation, belong properly to the church, those who are in Christ by faith alone. The second the gospel is received into the heart of a man or a woman, that man or woman is united to the church, capital C, the body of Christ. This union with the body of Christ is best demonstrated and lived out via membership with a local church. Hence, again, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. So our membership uh, matters, and Galatians, amongst other things, prove that. Our final point kind of concerning the true gospel is that the true gospel has an aim, it has an end, it has a goal, and that is God's glory. God's glory, and this is coming from verse 5. Um, Christianity can be summarized as a series of three unions. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I, I kind of like how succinct it is. The union between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The union between Christ and Jesus. Human and divine natures. And the union between the body of Christ and Jesus. All of Christianity is found there in those three unions. All of salvation's benefits are given to the church via her union with Christ. The Trinity is the boundary. Christ is the content. His atonement is the heart. The church is the recipient. And God's glory is its end, its goal. Paul writes in verse 5, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The true gospel brings God glory. And Early on, especially when I was really young, I always thought that that was a little weird, that God seeks his own glory. Because if you said that about yourself, or if you said that about me, you would be like, what a selfish person. You just, you're all about your own glory. And I, that bothered me because we're serving a God who, in the face of Christ, seems like a servant. He seems humble. So how is it that God is about his own glory, but yet also is described as serving others, loving others, being outside of himself. I was asked this question, and it changed my mind. It changed my entire perspective. How does God seek his own glory? It's not about he's seeking his own glory. It's about how he goes about getting his own glory. Ultimately, the answer to this question is most clearly found in the ministry and life of Christ. So let me summarize it. The Father the Son, and the Spirit bring about their own glory by planning to send the Son as a man to live humbly 
and love the broken and the lowly to make atonement for the sinners by taking their law place, then through the work of the Spirit to turn his enemies through repentance and belief to the lowly Savior away from Satan, sin, and death and making all things new. That's how God seeks his own glory. And so there's a word for that, humility. God seeks his own glory by putting other people and their desire, their needs above his own. And he gets glorified through that. He gets glorified through Christ and him crucified. And so I think we, should, we can all say with Paul, that very last word they attach is that, that the sentence, amen. Amen. Let this be so. I would love to stop here, but Paul continues. He talked about the true gospel, and now he turns to something that is not happy, is not good, is not nourishing. He turns to a false gospel, and this is in verses 6 through 9. Um, I'm going to start in verse 4, though. If you look at that phrase, deliver us from the present evil age, um, I, I held something back there. The word deliver in Greek is in what's called the subjunctive mood which is a fancy way of saying it's one step away from reality. It's hypothetical. It's, it should be a might or a may, not a definitive thing. So it should read something like this. Who gave himself on behalf of the sins of us in order that he might deliver us from the present evil age. Now, it's my belief that Paul puts that might there because of where he is going in verses six through nine. This deliverance is hypothetical. It's in the realm of maybe or might because the Galatians trust in the true gospel seems to potentially also be in the realm of maybe and might. They are teetering between the true gospel and a false gospel. And so Paul is now trying to convince them to not do that so that the might becomes must, that he, must or he does deliver us. So a false gospel is going to be described in three ways. It deserts God. It distorts the true gospel. It destroys the teachers and ultimately the ones who believe it until the end. So it deserts, it distorts, it destroys. So deserts comes from verse six. The, a false gospel deserts the God who calls us. Paul writes, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Note the, the conjunction word, and. Normally, uh, it comes after Christ and before turning to a different gospel. And normally functions to kind of bring two things together. But in this case, it's actually functioning more like an equal sign and a math problem. It's indicating that these two concepts as deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. To desert God is to turn to a different gospel. To turn to a different gospel is to desert God. Through the true gospel, God calls us in the grace of Christ. Um, a good, quick definition of grace. Uh, Christian hip-hop artist, Timothy Brindle, Shylin, you should check them out. If you, don't, you probably never heard of them, they're not famous. Um, Timothy Brendel and Shylin, they write this. Grace is God's riches, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. So 
Paul is essentially saying, you are deserting the blessings that God purchased for you and gave to you in Christ's death and resurrection. Christ and his benefits, as Calvin writes, remains useless to you because you are deserting him who called you. So uh, an analogy, think of a nice, cozy, freshly cut wooden cabin in the fine state of Maine during the dead of winter during a whiteout storm. Think of that. You're outside of the cabin, you have rags for clothes, no hot drink, no hot food. Inside the cabin, there's a roaring fire, there's medium rare bacon-wrapped filet mignon, there's hot coffee, there's hot chocolate, there's hot tea, just in case you're one of those people, not all of them. Fiery warmed blankets, a nice fluffy rug right next to the fire. Earlier that day, your friend handed you the key and said, go on in, use it, use it however you want. And you decided to trade his key out with some other random key that someone held out to you and said, hey, you want to swap? And so now you stand at the door unable to get in and enjoy the benefits that your friend has given you all because you thought switching keys was a good idea. So it is with Christ. He has given you the key, faith in his death and resurrection, union with him. And the Galatians are talking about switching out the gospel key for another key, and his benefits would then be useless. But unfortunately, I think it's far worse than this illustration. It's more like this. You're not merely abandoning the warm house when you abandon the gospel. You are deserting God and Christ, your friend opens the door to you, invites you into the cabin, implores you to come in and enjoy the fire, but instead you spit in his face, it freezes immediately because of how cold it is, and you declare him not to be your friend, and you wish that he would remain nailed to the cross. A false gospel deserts God, and it distorts the true gospel. So verse seven, False gospel distorts. Paul writes, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, this verse describes false teachers using two participles. There are those who stir up or make trouble, and there are those who have the desire to distort. For time's sake, we're just going to focus on one word, distort. The Greek word uh, metastrepho means to pervert to change, and usually it's stronger than just pervert or change. It's to quite literally flip it on its head, to change something to its opposite, to go against its very nature. It's like when you're a kid, it's opposite day, and you start saying things and everything the opposite means what it is. That's what's going on here. So distort, change three places, I'm convinced it means that. So Acts 2, James 4, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give the example. Acts 2, verse 20, the sun is described as turning or changing or distorting into darkness, the opposite of what it's supposed to do, right? James 4, 9, laughter is turned into mourning and joy is turned into gloom. So as a kind of test to the gospel message that we believe in, you can kind of use the five categories that we talked about um, and, and you can start asking questions. Does our gospel do damage to our understanding to the tr of the Trinity? Does it deny an aspect of that? Perhaps it denies one of the persons of God, Jehovah Witnesses. 
Perhaps it denies the doctrine itself. Oneness. There's only one person. There's not three persons. That would be like oneness Pentecostalism. Does the gospel do damage to our understanding of Christ, Christology, as the one person who's fully God and fully man? Perhaps it denies that Jesus is God the Son, as Islam does. Perhaps it denies his humanity, as the early Docetists did. They stated that Jesus, he only appeared to be a man. Perhaps it's a form of Gnosticism, which draws a distinction between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Spiritual good. Physical, bad. And you can see what that would do to the gospel. Perhaps it does something to salvation itself. Does it offer to you the blessings of Christ freely of charge by faith alone? Or does it add or subtract from that message? Works righteousness. It's important to see here that whatever distorts the true gospel threatens to desert the true gospel. Christ, and we are to hold the counterfeit up to the real and to look at it and to see what is this changing about this? And if it changes anything, you throw that away. This is of the uttermost importance because not only does it desert God and distort the true gospel, but it leads its proclaimers and ultimately its adherents to destruction. And this is verses eight through nine. The false gospel destroys its proclaimers, ultimately. Paul writes in 8 through 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Martin Luther has a really good way of kind of summarizing that verse in a way that just... uh, causes you to go, wow, that's interesting. He says this, that which does not teach Christ is not apostolic, even if Peter and Paul be the teachers. On the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic, even if Judas, Annas, Pilate, or Herod be the proclaimers. The gospel is self-authenticating. It needs nothing from man. It needs nothing from angels. It needs nothing from anybody. It is authenticated by God himself. The gospel is from God, and it won't change. So whether an angel, a gifted speaker, or Paul himself comes preaching another gospel, Paul writes, let him be accursed. So again, for brevity's sake, let's focus on the single word accursed, uh, anathema in the Greek. In verse 2, we talked about how the true gospel is for the church. One of the meanings uh, was that you, as the church, are responsible for keeping the true gospel, keeping it pure and untainted, unchanged, undistorted. And here we have the word accursed, and I think it ties a little bit to that. Let false teachers be accursed. What lies kind of behind this word? Uh, There's a, a, a good bit of usage in Paul. There's one reference that Luke uses in Acts, and then the rest of it is from the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament. They use this word quite a lot. Paul uses it in Romans 9.3 to communicate the idea of being cut off from Christ. He says, I wish that I could be cut off for Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, which is a pretty strong statement, that they might enjoy Christ. 
So cut off from Christ. I think that's what he likely 14 of the 22 times go to one singular story in the Old Testament, and it's the sin of Achan in Joshua 6 and 7, right after Jericho, when Achan grabs some things that are devoted to the Lord for destruction, and he hides them under his tent. That word for devoted things to destruction is the word anathema, accursed. He grabbed accursed things and hid them in his tent, and it ultimately led him to his his death. So it refers to being cut off from Christ, but it particularly is talking about these idea of devoted things to destruction. So the question then becomes, Paul, what do you mean when you say a false teacher is let them be accursed? Um, it's a command. It's not even, it's, it's more strong than let him be accursed. It's he must be accursed. Um, so what, it, what does Paul mean here? At the very least, he's saying to the Galatians that false teachers in their current state with their current false gospel are things devoted to destruction. They belong to the Lord's wrath, so don't mess with it. That's, that's, a, that's one way that it could read. Most commentators simply kind of stop there. They say the church should count them as delivered over to God's judgment and just stop listening to their, their message because those are things devoted to destruction. God will carry out judgment as he sees fit. Uh, but I think that's true. But I also think there's an actual direct application to the church itself from this as well that we can make. Um, that, that this doesn't just mean, oh, just mark them off in your mind. Uh, God and, and Paul here seem to lay a, a different layer of this judgment, and they seem to lay it at the feet of the churches of Galatia. Again, I think Calvin gets it right here. He says this, when Paul says, let them be accursed, the meaning must be, let them be held by you as accursed. And then there's a little note that he makes where he talks about excommunication which is a really fancy word that I want to just briefly talk about. Another way of saying excommunicate is that as a church, we no longer recognize that their confession of faith seems good because they're holding to a false Christ. That's what excommunicate means. Practically, it means we do not let them take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper communicates to everyone that their confession of faith seems good, they're united to Christ, they have Christ in them, and they're in Christ. But if they teach not Christ, if they hold not to Christ, they can't possibly be in Christ because they've deserted God. And so practically for you members, what this means is to have a Matthew 18 culture when it comes to things that would distort the gospel. We're talking about first-tier things here. You would confront someone and say, that's wrong. Maybe they say, yeah, you're right, I was wrong. All's good. They say, no, we're right, you're wrong. You bring two or three others, that's the second stage. They continue to refuse, you tell it to the church. The entire church membership gets involved in the conversation on it. And if it continues to be unrepentant, the church declares them to be, to be counted as an unbeliever. Now, note what I said there, counted. We can't search the hearts and the depths of man, and we can't search the hearts and depths of God's judgment. But we can say, this seems to be this way because of these things. And that's all that, that, uh, that's all that excommunication would be there. And so part of guarding the purity of the gospel 
is becoming a, a, a Matthew 18 cultured church where we are willing to go to one another when we're teaching something that distorts uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look and kind of conclude this. We've seen that the true gospel is Trinitarian. It's about Christ. It's salvific. It's for the church. It has God's glory as its end. We've seen the false gospel deserts God and the grace of Christ. It distorts a true gospel, the true gospel. And finally, it destroys those who would teach it and follow it to its end. And so my challenge is this to, to you guys in Remedy, and we've talked about this a little bit, but first, guard the purity of the gospel of Scripture. Become an avid asker of questions, particularly to the elders. Come to us and say, hey, I've been thinking about this. This sounds a little weird. What do you think? Let's go through this. Let's study this. Let's look at this. Ask questions. And finally, and this one's important, be teachable. Be mutually submissive to one another and be submissive to the elders. Take our Sunday school classes as we offer them over the next years. Be involved in community groups. Learn from sermons. Seek good books to read on uh, theology. As we grow in these areas, we'll fortify ourselves in a number of ways. We'll adorn the gospel by our love for one another, and we'll defend the gospel from impurity. The second thing, and this is the most important thing, because I think the first thing will happen naturally if you do the second thing, cling to Christ, the true gospel, by faith. Continue to believe that Christ's death for your sin and resurrection for your life is not only the entrance to salvation, but the entire road that leads you back home to God. Use the key. Go into the house with Jesus, the friend of sinners. Enjoy the warmth of his fiery compassion. Taste the delicious food, which is his teaching, and drink down the eternal warmth into your soul because he's the fountain of life. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, I just pray that you would make us aware of the beauty of the gospel, your glory in the face of Jesus. Um, if we could just but see a glimpse, it would transform everything that we think and do. It would transform how we worship and sing in these next moments. It would transform how we would treat our neighbors. It would transform us. So we just ask that, Lord. We know that without the Spirit, we can't see. We ask that you help us to see, that we would see your glory in the face of Christ today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.